HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman on their journey to success. Today, my guest is Zara Tangora, someone whose life changed in a split second because of a bus that crashed over a cliff in California. After that horrifying accident, she changed her path, and that path led her to cooking, to her own restaurant in Brooklyn, and recently a podcast called Life's a Banquet, which also happens to be on Heritage. And she has an amazing co-host who worked with her at her restaurant, Brucey, and is the life of the party. And I brought him here today so that he can tell us a little something about Zara that I could not find out Googling. Welcome, Breton Scott. Hello. Hello. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. you. That was just me actually clapping. Uh, Hello. How are you? I am so happy to have you here. I am so honored. I am on a, a this, first of all, I'm on a women's only podcast. You might ask how I, I got on. Well, I, I know the right people. I pulled a few strings and uh, I marched in the women's march. There I go. Here I am. Here I am. Support. And I'm a gay man, so it kind of is like halfway there. So, uh, Zara, 
is here. She, she's sitting next to me, and I have a little secret. Hi. <laughs> yeah. She didn't know this, but I have a little secret. Oh, no. Something you you can Google a lot of stuff. Go, the great YouTube video. Great joke. Right, Sarah? Remember that one? Uh, yes. That, Google that on YouTube. But there's a better secret. Hold on. Yeah. What is the YouTube video? I have a <laughs> dirty joke of the week on uh, when Eater used to do that, and it's a very dirty joke followed by an Andrew Dice Clay impression. Google it. And there's also there's a, one of her chefs... <laughs> It was upstaging her in the background doing some, uh, let's just call it some mock fellatio. That's that's actually, (laughs) that's what we're calling it that. Anyway, so besides that, uh, another little secret about Zara is that one time she uh, cooked, and I didn't actually see this, but she cooked in her bikini when she first opened a restaurant. Top and bottom. Top mm-hmm. and bottom, yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. heard the story, and she, and it, I'm sure you're all wondering. Yes, she did wear an apron. Mm-hmm. That's and and a hat. <laughs> so you were Safety totally first. you were totally up to the health code <laughs> I, there. Yeah, and kitchen clogs, and you know, gloves, and <laughs> so, I'll probably, yeah, that deep fryer meant nothing to her <laughs> midsection. <laughs> oh, uh, and what she liked to work with? Uh, Zara. Don't oh, answer. Don't well, answer that. Dep- <laughs> Well, I'll tell you now, because I still worked with Zara as of two weeks ago, and we probably might work together again. We still kind of work together, but she's great to work with. Uh, she's very focused. She gets the job done. Uh, and as long, you know, if she likes you, you're, you're golden. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Luckily, so, she, Zara liked me, so I was total, I was like, she's fine. Okay, and great. let's take the flip side, and that's your last question. So um, she's perfect in every way because you're partners, but like, what's the one thing you're like, oh my God, I roll no. Uh... <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Sometimes speak, speak it's okay because she's writing a book about it. it's the title of her next book and potentially and it's called Things <laughs> That I Say in the Kitchen. It's called I'm sorry for, I'm for sorry. what I said when I was cooking. And Zara has kind of that classic old French temper. Can, not always. You've been very good about it and and can definitely uh go off on the loose end sometimes. Okay, I, I like knowing that about you because I'll be very careful in the rest of the pod. But, but um, we've all <laughs> okay. That's it for you, Brett. That's it. Listen, I've I've got to go uh, write a proposal for a multi million dollar book. Okay, uh, called <laughs> "Things I Said in the Kitchen." It's it's a great idea. Oh. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, and we we'll were so see. happy to have you. And thanks okay. for giving me like a little extra insight into Zara. All right, thank you. Bye, bye, uh, Breton. Okay, how did that feel? It was fine. I mean, I'm, my life is an open book, really. I have very few secrets. This is a small town. <laughs> okay. But I'll meet well, up with him after the show. <laughs> and we'll, right, we'll learn a lot more about you um, in that book. So as I started the show before we learned about the bikini incident <laughs> and the mock fellatio incident um, <laughs> in the YouTube video, we're, we were starting at like, sort of a really heartfelt place, which is this moment that changed your life. And I'm wondering, because now it's at least six years ago, is it? Oh, man. What year are we in now? 2019? This happened in 2006. So it was 13 years oh, ago. 13, oh. The accident? Yeah. The 13 accident. years ago. Yeah. So yeah. what do you remember most vividly about that day? Well, I was on tour with a friend of mine who's a musician. And my former career trajectory before I was a chef and a restaurant owner was um, in display art and merchandising. And I had just left a job. And then a good friend of mine, uh, a rapper named Mr. Liff, who's wonderful, asked me to go with him, 21-year-old me, on the road and going to sell merch. And 
it was awesome. You know, at, at that age, I thought it was the coolest possible thing that could happen. So your your role was going to be like to stand and sell t-shirts and yeah, hats. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, that's cool. Yeah. And we were going to go to Europe. We were, I mean, the tour was supposed to be all over the country, then through Europe. And at the time, he was a very famous, you know, underground rapper. And the whole scene was really kind of my life. And I was obsessed with it. So I thought it was just, the, it was the best thing that could have ever happened. So the... A uh, woman sitting in front of me doesn't look like you'd have like an <laughs> underground rap life. Like, is that um, what dark part of you is that? Was that just fun well, and wild? I grew up in a town called Northport, and uh, a bunch of the people that I hung out there was a definite Northport, Long Island, Northport, in, in, Long Island, exactly, in New York State. Yes, that's that's right for all of the uh, out of New Yorkers out there. Um, and in my school and in my town, uh, there was a couple. There was one particularly very famous rapper named Aesop Rock who went to my school, and it became he was a phenomenon. And through that, they, it was just the people that I hung out with. Like it was a really big thing, rap in general. Um, you know, I I'm from the '90s, and <laughs> uh, in the She's '90s, here back for the '90s. I'm uh, I'm here from the '90s. So uh, and in that time, rap was huge, and it was just something I was interested in, and graffiti culture, and all of that. And people, I think, just morphed through a lifetime. Although I definitely still have a lot of that kind of in my personality. I have a friend who we text uh, every Wednesday. We call it Rap Wednesdays, and ask each other different like rap related questions, like favorite Wu-Tang spinoff albums of all time. So I still got a little bit of that in me, but I have an enormous respect for rap music, music in general, but graffiti culture and all that. It's a big part of my, of my young adult life. So you went on the road, which was kind of a dream come true. It was, it was a dream come true. Picture it. There I am (laughs) on the West coast. Uh, So we go down from San Francisco uh, down to LA to San Diego, three days in the day of the accident to go back to your original question. Um, we had spent the day in San Diego. I was with my friend Jeff, aka Mr. Liff, and we're hanging out and just having a really nice day. And it's actually really funny because sometimes I don't know if you ever think this, but when tragedy strikes or someone dies, I always wonder like, were they feeling weird that day? Did you know somewhere? I didn't. I always want to know like what the sky was because of nine eleven. Like the yeah. sky was so perfect and blue, so blue. And so sometimes the most tragic things happen on the most blue days. Yeah, this and was you a had blue a day. perfect day. This was a blue day. Um, it was beautiful, and then there was a show. We left, and uh, we happened to all be awake, which was key because in a tour bus, I don't know if anyone out there listening has experience with tour buses, but the middle section where the sleeping quarters are, lock. And don't open unless the bu- unless the bus is on, which it wasn't when it crashed. Everyone was up because we were watching Anchorman again, the '90s uh, slash early 2000s. Because that seems very random. Yeah, we I had bought Anchorman at a Tower Records for 9.99. This is really dating me. And we were watching because we had just left San Diego. So San Diego, you know, Anchorman is a San Diego movie, and we we're watching it so we're awake and some people in the back were listening to a new record that came out and we we're all awake and all of a sudden I just remember hearing boom 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 and I was like oh no that's not good and that moment when you realize that something is wrong and you're powerless about changing it is so profound and that is a feeling that I will never forget and then I blacked out and then woke up trapped underneath someone in a burning bus <laughs> mangled twisted bus uh, how did you get out? Like Jaws of Death open up the bus? No, the door opened. Uh, the bus crashed door side up. No way. Yes. So we were able to get out. But I was under someone who was a very large person, well over 200 pounds. And that kind of thing, when you say, when people say you can lift a car, 
I just remember feeling I don't the again the most distinct real memory is aside from when I knew we were going to crash. I just was like I don't want to feel myself explode. Like I don't want to feel myself. I don't want this bus to explode and then you know what I mean. I haven't had that feeling, but that sounds horrible. Yeah, you know what I mean, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what the exploding thing. Um, and was it because it was dark out? Yeah, it was in the middle of the night. Middle of the night, so you like didn't 4 see, and you went off a, the bus, off a went forty off foot cliff, a cliff. Yeah, in the middle of the desert. So did you feel that your stomach drop, or you just the I bump, bump, bump? Just remember the bumps, and then knowing that there was a troublesome situation and then I must have hit my head or something and then when we when we finally crashed and I had that feeling of not wanting to die I pushed this person off of me with that adrenaline kind of thing jumped out ran up a, the ravine the rocky ravine and I remember being afraid that I was going to get bit by a rattlesnake and hoping we could still go on with the tour and then when I finally came to I realized my hand was torn basically like sorry if anyone's squeamish but basically torn off yeah, like all of the skin. It looks normal now. We were just looking at it before. We were looking at it because I was yeah. curious. It's, it doesn't it's, look uh, so bad. It's Zara's right hand, which yes. were you right-handed? Yes. You are right-handed. I, I remain right-handed, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a very functioning hand. We, we yeah. cooked together um, the other day, and yeah. she's very, very good with a whisk. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so that right hand is fully, so And no one, um, people were injured, but no one died. No one is, died, and no one was permanently disfigured, or no one lost any limbs, um, I was actually like amongst the worst injured, me and two other people. Um, yeah, it was a really bizarre experience. And in that moment, like, to, I just wonder if there's anything that you remember from that time aside from the rattlesnake. And, you yeah. know, you look down at your hand and you're like, oh, fuck. I was like, oh, fuck, I need help. And nobody ever drives down that road, or like, apparently, because I've had other people have been like, oh, yeah, that stretch of road. In uh, El Centro, California, nobody ever drives down there. And somehow this woman drove down. She picked me up. Uh, my friend tied his sock around my wrist. And I must have destroyed her car. If you're listening out there, I would love to help you repair that. Uh, pay for the whatever you must have had you, to do to the Did she interior. disappear? she an angel who came? An angel. A car? Yeah. An angel came. Wrapped yes. your wrist, whatever. <clears throat> yeah. And then drove you to a hospital? Yeah. Because there was no cars on the road? No cars. And then it was this tiny rinky-dink hospital. And I just remember that one of the attending, or the, one of the nurses, or maybe he was a doctor, uh, was missing like three fingers himself. And he came in and he was like, don't worry, you can get by with just two of these. And I was like, what the hell's happening here? It was so, it was in, very intense. And did you stay in that rinky dink hospital? No, I got transported uh, to UCLA. San and then Diego. what about Jeff? Uh, Jeff was fine. Nothing happened to him, really. I mean, bumps and bruises. And, I mean, losing a tour. And I, he had his own kind of recovery, just career-wise, I think, from something like that happening. And just emotionally and mentally. But physically, he was pretty much fine. But I just imagine if it were me and I had encouraged you to come on a tour. And this yeah. would be like the trip of a lifetime. And... I'd encouraged you. I think that it would be very hard for me. Yeah, it was hard. I think if I had been permanently injured in a really horrifying way, um, or if I, God forbid, had died, it would have probably exploded differently. It's really funny. He actually, we we are still very good friends, but you know those friends in life that you kind of talk to just once in a while, but they're still your heart. Yeah. So he randomly texted me this morning. He's like, hey, how are you? And he didn't know about the podcast or anything, which is so funny. It just makes you believe in magic, right? I believe I do believe in magic. So that's kind of incredible because he knew we were going to be talking about him. I know. And bringing up this whole like, you know, hard thing. Yeah. Um, And do you 
actually remember it? Or is this the story you've told so often that this is what you remember? That's a really good question. Um, I think both. You know, I've done, my mom is a therapist, so I've definitely done some EMDR back in the day. EMDR, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's a, it's a form of eye movement that brings you back. It's almost like a form, like a kind of hypnosis sort of, although I'm sure there are people who do EMDR out there like, it's not hypnosis, but it's, (laughs) that's a kind of easy way to understand it. Uh, It has to do with like light and eye movement and it can bring you back to the time. So right after my accident, I did some EMDR to kind of access those memories and You're absolutely right that sometimes when a trauma happens to you, you can tell the story so many times that it just becomes a movie. And especially with this story, because it's, I built my career on it, essentially my professional career, you know, um, like, what does that feel like? It's a, it's, um, you know, in a way when I was, Ooh, um, when I was, that was my mother. Michelle Obama. Hello. (laughs) Yes. No, it's okay. My phone just (laughs) rang in the middle of my podcast. My mother, um, who's awesome. Hi mom. Hey mom. Uh, so, I was preparing and it's a pivotal moment and it's a, it's a real pivotal moment. I was like, it's not like it's made up, but do you ever feel like, Oh my gosh, I wish that wasn't the pivotal moment. Cause I have to keep going back to it. That's a, another great question. Um, it doesn't hurt so bad. There are other moments in my life that hurt so much worse, you know, losing in some capacity, losing my restaurant, even though it wasn't, you know, ripped from me or anything like that. I chose, uh, certain heartbreaks, you know, death of my father. Like there are so many things that hurt so much worse. That doesn't hurt. It, it really did feel like an opportunity, but one of those opportunities that you would, if you were faced with the choice to do it again, of course the answer would be absolutely not. But had that never happened, I mean, we would absolutely not be sitting here. I'm watching my, one of my former employees and good friends walk by as we're sitting here, who is uh, now the head baker here. Oh, amazing. Who started, at Roberta's, because yeah, we're in Brooklyn. At Roberta's, who started as an intern for me. She, like, learned to make bread at the restaurant, and now she's the head baker here. So, like, everything is this bit, like, if that accident didn't happen, you know? And so... Did it dawn on you slowly that you should, you know, stop doing essentially visual merch? With yeah, visual merchandising, exactly. Um, or was it sort of in the back of your mind? Like, how did that one? Well, I really was into doing the visual merchandising thing because I went to school at FIT for fine art. And as far as I was concerned, I actually like stopped going to school after my bachelor's instead of continuing because I'm like, this is my dream job. Um, But at first I really couldn't do it because visual merchandising includes like a lot of heavy lifting and you're rewiring things. And my, my mitt didn't work at first. So, and I mitt didn't work. Yeah. This mitt, my right (gasps) mitt, my hand. hand. Yeah. It was kind of funky. I took a lot of physical therapy to get it going again. So at first it started as like not a choice. And then I was lucky enough to get some money from this accident. So then I didn't have to come up with a decision right away. And I spent some time traveling. I went to live in France for a little bit with my boyfriend at the time. I was like, I'm fabulous. I'm 24 years old. I'm going to do this. And I just spent some time really trying to live and experience things. And And were you doing that sort of encounter balance to I almost died, so I'd really like to live? Yes, it was a big part of it. I was like, I, you know, 
one thing that you get from a near-death experience is realizing how everything is over so fast. And then that perspective fades away so fast. And you have to keep, even as someone knowing that from firsthand experience, you still have to keep trying to like wrap your brain around it every single day. It's still an effort. I'm actually fascinated by that idea because a lot of people say, you know, they have um, an illness or they have an experience with cancer and they can never forget it. Like it's imprinted on their soul. Mm. And I had an experience with cancer and it didn't, yeah. it didn't make me feel like, you know, I mean, I love every minute of the day anyway. Maybe I'm very Pollyanna-ish, but <laughs> I have to say, like, I don't draw on that cancer, like, I could be dead tomorrow thing. Right. Um, well, don't you feel like it's kind of a balance? Because we have to have we have to have to a balance, everyone in life, right? Like, between knowing how impermanent everything is and also valuing what your standards are for yourself and how you want to be treated. Like, if if we're like really living that carpe diem, you know, life is so short and so impermanent thing wholeheartedly, 100% all the time, you run the risk of uh, giving up your own sense of identity and what is important to you, you know? So someone okay, can wait, why? Like someone could just treat you poorly and you say, you know what? It's okay. You only live, live once. You only live once. It's uh, fine. You also, but you could also take the other point of view. You only live once and you really, you know, totally dress the person down. So. Totally. But I think it can be like, it's a slippery slope sometimes with perspective. It's really important to have it and to understand how everything goes by so fast, but also that this is it. So make your one life how you'd like it to be. You know, I don't remember what your initial question was because <laughs> I just got so starting to wax all fill. And another thing about life, how crazy it is. <laughs> getting very philosophical here I, today. I guess about what did you say about uh, perspective and how if you've gone through an experience, yeah. Right. What your perspective is now and how this um, one moment changed right. and affected you. It, it made me um, afraid for a while. It took a long time for me to get over the PTSD element of it. Um, I think it made me a little bit more intense, especially when I opened my restaurant, because everything felt like it was, I almost died for this. It has to work. Um, I... I think I took my perspective and uh, again, and probably to an nth degree that it didn't need to go to where it made my personality much more intense for a while. And now I think I've come to a much more grounded place with that, but it's very scary as you know, you're saying you've had an experience with cancer. It's scary to realize like that it's over so soon and it's a lot. And we all know that and we all have to kind of forget that that's true throughout the day a million times to just get by. Right. I think that, um, the the notion of fear also as um, something that drives you rather than holds you back, mm -hmm. right? Because fear can be a tremendous motivator yeah. um, and it can be the adrenaline that makes you thrive. Yeah. Um, and the intensity probably benefited Brucey, the re your restaurant. Absolutely. It did. It was a gift and a curse, like most things are that are your strong suits are double are you know double sided. So let's talk about um, your restaurant because that that was um, eventually where you arrived. You're like you went to France. Mm -hmm. You like really enjoyed that. Yeah. And what drew you back? And why a restaurant? The hardest thing on the planet to do when you had no restaurant experience. <sighs> Well, my parents were both uh, chefs before. My mom is now a bereavement therapist, and my dad has since passed away, but he was a, a country club manager for a long time. So they got out of the cooking and catering business, but I learned... And it's interesting. People always are like, did you learn to cook from your parents? Like, yes and no. 
they taught me certain things. I just absorbed their love of food. Um, even when they weren't, I didn't grow up in this household that was so full of bountiful, beautiful home cooked food. I just knew it was there somehow. And my grandfather was this great Italian American cook. So cooking was always just, and food appreciation was something that was always with me. Honestly, we went out more. Really? And those are kind of the more formative experiences. Um, and not to fancy places. So what were, what were some places you went out to that you loved? Like, what do you remember from that? I mean, there's two that are the big takeaways. One was called J&J's, and it was a decades-old restaurant that my parents went to, and they were kids in South Huntington and Long Island. And it was very, like, classic Italian-American, but also very stuck in a certain time that would, it could never exist today. So one half of the restaurant was restaurant, and the other half was a bar with a bunch of old, you know, Long Island degenerates hanging out, smoking cigarettes, playing pool, drinking pitchers of beer, eating bar pies. The waitresses would smoke. There was two twin waitresses in their 60s, and they'd smoke cigarettes while they were taking your order. I love that. I just, you don't find that kind of thing anymore. <laughs> Big meatballs and all, you know, so that I remember, and that was a very special thing. Um, I went with both my mom and my dad, who were divorced, and we both had experiences there. And then another was another kind of lost restaurant in Long Island, which was called Tung Ting. And it was a fancy Chinese place with waiters wearing tuxedos, a bar with a piano, like a Billy Joel cover artist and big fish tank and Lazy Susans. And so those kinds of things really made me realize how special food was. It was so exciting. Was it also special because you had these divorced parents and this was, you know, some really wonderful time you got to spend with them? Absolutely. You weren't, you weren't working. You didn't have to do homework. Totally. Yeah. I think I never did homework. But <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes. No, you're absolutely right. So those are some of my big food memories. And so when I gotten, uh, had gotten my accident trying to figure out what to do, I had been cooking for a really long time just for friends and family. And I had, you know, the peanut gallery in my ear saying, you know, you should open a restaurant. You should open a restaurant. And I have never been someone to back down from a challenge. And at age 25, when I was first coming up with a concept for Brucey, I also was egotistical. And I was, if someone said you can't do it, then I was like, I'm going to do this now. Even if I don't want to do it, you've told me I can't. So, you know. Why did people think you couldn't? I think that people who didn't know about restaurants thought I could. And the people that I did interact with who were in the restaurant business gave me some really sound advice, which is this is a bad idea. And I wasn't willing to listen to that. I'm curious, what what other like good advice did you ignore in your life? A lot. Do, uh, do your homework. Um, Does that really matter? I, I mean, you know what? I was really bad in school. Um, I had a great social life in school. I had a lot of fun. I wasn't serious. Also, actually going back to someone I had mentioned before, this guy Aesop Rock, anyone who's into rap out there has probably heard of him. Um, he gave me an interview. for. A, I had to do a New York person, place, or thing essay when I was in college. And he actually gave me an interview because he's from New York. Uh, from my town, Northport. And he had gone to my school, to FIT. And I was talking about how much I hated life drawing and this and that. And I figured we were going to connect on that. And he'd be like, yeah, that's right. Do things your own way. You know, when, to go back even further, when I was a little kid, my mom used to say that there was no rules. I had zero, only, only rule, don't eat blue food and don't be mean to people. So I grew up with this <laughs> idea of doing everything my own way. And so when I was talking to Aesop, I thought we were going to agree. And he goes, no, you have to know the fundamentals. You should pay attention to everything. You need to go to life drawing. You need to do still lifes before you could ever do anything else. And I just 
was floored because I didn't think that that applied to me. And looking back, it like really, really should have applied to me. If I could do anything differently, it would have been just to pay more attention to people that knew more than I did in general. But what effect would that have had today? I think that I would have, uh, if I had still opened a restaurant, I think I would have done it better. I think I would have been better to myself. I think I would have felt less of a need, like Breton was jokingly saying about that I can be monstrous in the kitchen sometimes throughout the years. I had been deeply monstrous at times because I thought as a woman um, that I needed to be instead of really spending, maybe spending time in kitchens myself um, and seeing what that might have felt like to have someone speak to me in a really aggressive way. Maybe I would have done things differently um, in terms of just understanding finance better. You know, I, I you would have gotten more of the fundamentals instead of like, I can do anything. And yeah. I think the I can do anything attitude is like it's fascinating to me, like right this very minute, because yeah. everybody feels that they can do anything. Yeah. And in a way they can, but maybe not like to the their utmost ability if they had learned from someone. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the food of Brucey and the, the cooking. And then some of those painful things like closing that restaurant that you love. So we'll be right back. Stay with us for more of Speaking Broadly, Zara Tangora. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, your host. Should I say hostess? Your host and Zara Tangora. Zara uh, has a podcast on heritage with Breton Scott, her co-host, who had the pleasure of introducing her here today. (laughs) And then we kicked him out of the room because it's girls only. Bye. Bye. So we were talking about um, Brucey and all the things you didn't know, Mm -hmm. but you went into it not knowing anything and you did everything. So I'm sure you learned super fast. I did. I did learn super fast. You know, the one thing that I think I did know is I think I have a good palate and I think I know how to make food that's exciting. I think I know how to set the tone. And I also really like working with other people. 
and I'm not necessarily a micromanager. I like to, there have been times when I've been very particular, I'm very particular, but I really like being part of a team. So those were the things that I think I did right. And then, as mentioned before, wearing a bikini. Ridiculous. <laughs> Would I ever do that? It sends shivers up my spine to think of how absolutely unprofessional that is. But it's a great memory. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think uh, I started really – I learned a lot from the other people that I worked with. And so my closest confidant and – I shouldn't even say employee, just the best thing that ever happened in my professional life, my friend Jenny Lupo – who became the chef de cuisine for years. She really helped me when she joined the restaurant about one year in. She really helped rein in what my creativity was. She's extremely creative as well, but she's much more practical and had a great resume behind her. And so we would really work together and she really helped kind of steer it in the right direction where we're looking more, you know, at cost and costing on our dishes and thinking about how much, because we change the menu every single day there. So she's like, how about we change the menu you know, three times a week. And then it was like twice a week and it was still great. It was better. You know, that's the thing. Like it's actually, it really got better. And it, it got better partly with constraints, partly with time. Yeah. Partly with understanding who you're cooking for. Exactly. Or what you want to do. Um, I'm fascinated by the, your Valentine's um, dinners. <laughs> and I don't know if those are the only sort of themed dinners you did, but clearly you love pop culture. Yeah. The rap is one piece of it, but yeah. I just would love to hear about the genesis of the, um, some of your Valentine's dinners. Totally. So one, this is how the theme dinner started at Brucey. Um, I do, I am pop culture obsessed. I'm also event obsessed. And in my family, I like to joke that we pop a bottle of champagne when someone goes to get the mail. Like we just <laughs> like to celebrate things. You know, my parents, were so creative in their catering business, the love and oven. They would throw these wild over the top parties with gorgeous spreads of buffet tables. My dad would dress as a tomato and put his head in the, in the buffet through a cut hole in the bottom of the buffet table as a big tomato and scare people. And they'd have, so that was my background of what my parents were and they, our home was the same. So my brain is already geared towards creativity. My dad used to make me all my own toys when I was a kid. I mean, so anyway, um, that just sounds, I want to hear so many more of those stories, but if we spend too much time on that, I'm not going to, oh, I want to hear I'll about tell you after the show. crazy creativity. Okay. So the theme dinners at Brucey really started really early on. I was so burnt out and sometimes I would just like, my brain would turn to mush when I was working with my GM trying to do our menu for the night. So we always had the one consistent thing we always had was a tagliatelle dish that had tomato butter and fried Brussels sprouts and homemade chachitella. It was delicious. And one night when we're doing the menu, I'm like, oh, yeah, we have tonight Harvey Kaitagliatelli. <laughs> and then so we just started naming everything from Pulp Fiction. And we made a huge banner and changed the name of the restaurant to Jackrabbit Slims. We made a $5 milkshake. This was on the fly, like an hour before service started. And I had to retell the servers. And everyone's like, okay. And then the customers came in. It was a Friday night, I remember, in like 2011. Everyone was like, why are you doing this? <laughs> This now I feel like everyone does themed everything, but people were very confused. But a lot of them were like happy. It was so fun. That sounds like so much fun. It was awesome. And then from then on, we just started doing theme dinners on Valentine's Day. Uh, I guess it was 2014, and I was with my old general manager, Megan Sclero. And we're in a cab going to, I think we're going to eat at Romans or something. Anyway, I'm trying to bring you back to the exact moment. <laughs> I want to know. Then we go to Romans and we have Arancini. So we're in the cab and Beyonce's self-titled uh, album had just come out and it was, a, you know, it was a, people were crazed for it. It's actually, I don't remember the last time an album came out that caused such a stir. And I was like, let's just do Beyonce as the theme. 
And so we did. And we what rolled served? with it. We served, oh my gosh, so many things. We did breast sinews child, which was like a veal breast <laughs> dish. We did, um, oh, there was so many things. What else? I'm like on the spot right now. I, for Sorry. some reason, I can't think. No, I, I just want to. We did a surfboard, which was, you know, she had a, one of the songs was surfboards. So we did like a bone marrow or something surfing on it. We did... Um, a bunch of Jay Z references. There was a lot of stuff. It was it was really fun. Reasonable trout. So instead of reasonable doubt, um, it was great. It was really fun. But it, the thing that was like the coolest. Everything was a pun, but it wasn't just like a punny name. Every every little element of it was very well thought out, and it went completely viral, like worldwide viral. We had people calling from like Milan. We had I had friends in Texas who were like, I just heard about your thing on um on the on the, my local radio station. Uh, it was crazy. It was in Time Magazine. It was on MTV. It was Spin Magazine had a table. We had thousands and thousands of emails, people trying to get in for it. Cooked till four in the morning. Oh, my goodness. Exhausting. It was crazy. So the next year we did Kim and Kanye, and it was pretty cool. Too. We had a big Kim Kardashian ice luge in the backyard where you would take shots out of her butt. <laughs> it was amazing. Do you miss that? Cause now I miss it. Yeah. I miss it so much. You miss the creativity of it or you miss the people or the... There's a camaraderie. I feel like a lot of jobs, right? Of course, you really get close to your coworkers. There's something that's so intense about restaurant work because it's so immediate. And while the subject matter itself is not life or death like it is in a hospital, the amount of pressure is... I would assume... I've never worked in a hospital, but similar because it's just... it's the sense of urgency. You must get the food out. And so you work with these people in such an intense way for 70 hours a week, you know, 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. I mean, how often do you see your best friends? 90 hours a year? Really? <laughs> if you're lucky. Truly. If you're lucky. Yeah. So these people become more, I mean, it's the cliche to be like, they're like family, but anyone out there listening, I mean, who's worked in a restaurant, they are. And uh, I miss that unreplicatable uh, closeness. So I want to talk about loss. Yeah. Because you've had so much loss. I mean, yeah. you've had um, like emotional loss, which is th that loss of a feeling of safety when you're in a bus that goes down a ravine completely yeah. out of your control. Right. So you have you don't have that feeling of impenetrability that we mostly go around with like, that's ah, all going to, you know, a flower pot is not going to drop on my head. Yeah. This car is not going to crash into a divide. Right. Um, but you've also had, you know, enormous loss, loss of your restaurant, loss of your father, loss of your grandfather, um, and your mother's a bereavement expert. Yeah. So, or a specialist. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm wondering, and so a lot of the restaurants that you were saying that you love are lost. Yeah. So I'm just wondering like, in what way do you connect like loss with the present in your mind? Well, I think that, uh, that's a really great point to make. And I think that when I think about things that I've lost, it, it, I, I'm not quite able to always look at them in a positive light. You know, it's not always when I walk, I still live in the neighborhood that Bruce was in. So I walk by it all the time and I walk by and I definitely have good memories, but it breaks my heart every time I walk by, you know, every time I think about my dad, I might get that feeling of like when you, if you swallowed a rock, you know what I mean? It just gets stuck right there. Um, but we still have to go on. You know, we have to keep moving, keep trying. Uh, we don't have to, but it's good if we can, because otherwise, you know, your life sucks if you don't. Um, the the difference between Brucey, of course, and your father is the difference of choice. Absolutely. 
So when you've chosen to give something up, like, does that have a different emotional resonance for you? Yeah, I mean, Brucey was the best thing ever, and it really did so much for me that I could have never imagined, but it was also killing me. I mean, I couldn't bear being woken up in the middle of the night again, being like a pipe burst and you need to get down here. Like, I just couldn't take it anymore. It was crushing my soul. Um, But when I decided to close it, I was really unprepared for how much that would break my heart. I was like excited in some way because I, I felt like I'd be relieved and then I'd go into the next thing. But I was so sad and I missed so much of it. And really, I had also felt there was a time when I was just convinced that I was going to be amongst the important chefs in New York City and I would build an empire. And maybe that was my unreasonable ego talking. It was something that I thought would really happen. And I really wanted to not only do it for myself or my bank account, I wanted to do it to prove that young women can do anything that they put their minds to. And they can. And I could have probably done that if I had tried and had made the right connections. So when I closed, I felt like I failed women really badly. It was very intense. I was like, I am setting a, such a bad example for people right now. Not to say that I father myself in any way thinking that there was the world was watching or even 10 people were, but I feel like... I mean, again, just addressing the listeners. Yeah. I mean, people loved Brucey. <laughs> Thank you. Right? I mean, it was very beloved. Thank you. I just... Uh, I felt like if there was anyone paying attention out there that was like watching and, you know, cause I was featured in things that had to, that had to do with whip, you know, women, chef, women, chefs being successful. And I just, I felt like I not only failed myself that I failed. Uh, I did, didn't do honor to the money that I had gotten my one shot uh, or failed my parents or made my dad disappoint or my mom disappointed. I really just felt like I'm, I'm doing bad for women in business. And I didn't know how to reconcile that, you know. And has that gotten easier? Yeah, I think the thing is, is that I didn't fail women in business. Um, I it took it was a very hard road to refine myself. And just recently, I've started a new job as a culinary director for a small startup company, um, which is great. But self worth is a hard thing, right? And I think we try to quantify it um, with you know, what job you do or whose wife you are or whose mom you are or whatever. And I wasn't any of those things for a while. And it wasn't anyone's wife or girlfriend. I wasn't anyone's mom. I didn't have, I wasn't anyone's boss anymore. I felt like nothing. And I had done it to myself and I had had all of this stuff and I had all this potential. And then, you know, I was, I'm, have been working consistently over the past couple of years, you know, that's not the issue, but I felt like my sense of purpose was lost and then I took it from myself and I was really worried I'd never get it back. So how did you get it back? Um, I started, this is really cheesy and it might've just been a coincidence, but I started being nice to myself. I started instead of days getting up and being like, you suck. I got up and looked in my mirror. Even if I thought I looked bad or I had a hangover, I said, you're awesome. And I would write notes and I'd put them around um, and just carving a new pathway in my brain and, and remembering that I don't suck. And just because I don't have a restaurant, I still am a part of the community. I still have something to say. I still, you know, have something to offer. And um, yeah. So the notes work. The I'm, notes work. That's interesting. Just because you see them and you're like, that's true. Well, 
I believe in magic, but I also believe in the practicality of, of concepts like karma, which are kind of scientific in a way where you can be like, if I'm actually, what energy am I really putting out there? You know, it's, it's kind of the, you know, you catch more flies with honey type of, of, uh, ethos. So I tried just putting out more, a little bit more honey, you know? Um, I had actually experimented with stopping complaining for 21 days based on a Tim Ferriss podcast that I had listened to. And when I did that, I noticed my whole life changed. This was after a very depressing winter last year and I, and everything changed in a, in an instance. And again, this period of time, and I'm not trying to say, listen, you listener out there, you just start being positive and everything will turn around. But there is something to it that I've experienced at least it was the best way to turn around for me. I love the notion of stop stopping complaining. I think the like the first piece of that is to recognize you are complaining. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think that we might be we might see it as critical rather than complaining. Yeah. But at the end of the day, hmm, it might come down to complaining. Yeah. With um Brucey, did what was it that you were trying to say? And do you feel like what is your voice trying to say now? With Brucey, I was trying to, it was at a very different time in food. And I had been a loyal customer and still am of Diner and Marlowe and Sons, and which was a very kind of new concept at the time of casual fine dining and, and really experimenting and playing with food. And I was really turned on by that. And I wanted to kind of keep going with that notion of fresh, healthy food being accessible to people of really fun great, exciting stuff and people being engaged in the process of cooking and getting it to be like one big dinner party. Cause I'd have these dinner parties and people would come over and it was magic. And it was that perfect amount of candle burn downness with a little wine <laughs> slashing around and the greatest song comes on and everyone's dancing, having fun. And that's like, that is the biggest heart swell, right? It's like those moments in life that if you're on your deathbed, you're like those times. And I really wanted to do that for people. I didn't know because Going to a good restaurant is one of those times in life when you are really cared for and when you really can have, like people will come up to me at my restaurant and be like, I got engaged. I went on my first date here. Then I got engaged here. We brought our parents here for their part. We brought our kid here on their first birthday. And I just, I just wanted to participate in making people's lives better and making my own life better and worthwhile in the, in the process. I think it is interesting. Like, um, if, if you go back and listen to this podcast, you'll hear yourself talk about life and death a lot, which is interesting because we started with life and death, but I think it, it continues to in, you know, infuse your thoughts. Like, what is it that you're leaving? What is it that you're giving people that has a sense of um, importance in their life? And that at the end, like, what is left that you contributed to? Which I think is, it's a very beautiful, mm. um, it's a very beautiful thought. Uh, Thank you. And your your grandfather, uh, we were talking about meatballs together mm-hmm. before, because I, uh, I like meatballs just fine. I, I made them for my book, Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, and I rather stupidly made them um, to serve to Danny Meyer. Uh, <laughs> because once I finished them, I'm like, oh my God, this is not just a meatball. It's like a, a hamburger in the round. And I'm and, you know, like, why am I serving this to like you know king of shake shack at the time yeah. and, and so many more of course amazing amazing <laughs> restaurants burger in the so, round so i have such bad flashback for meatballs but um just in terms of you know reclaiming the lost past uh, your grandfather was a great meatballer he was a meatballer extraordinaire and i think what i was 
trying to say then and still am now that is very important to me going back to that and to your point here is a classic you know a classic is just tugs at people's heartstrings I loved it then I love it now my grandfather was Italian American and he had a giant belly and he would always sit in a stool at the oven and nibble things out of the pot and he had the biggest ears he could have flown away with those things he was just an intense person and he died when I was fairly young I think I was nine we lived with him he like my dad I mean he was my dad was much nicer. My grandfather could be very mean and scary. He was from a different generation. He was an oil truck driver and then an electrolux salesman. I remember him telling me when I was in kindergarten, if I didn't do my homework, I would end up homeless. You know, so he was like, no, he didn't mess around. But he did drive home my love of that kind of home. Like, I just, any, any fancy restaurant could never hold a candle to what it is to just eat out of a pot, you know, or get have some chicken soup. Or have someone make like their grandmother's favorite dish. I know that people say that a lot, but I think it's because it's really true. It's it's heart food. Yeah, I uh, my grandmother didn't cook very much at all. Although, again, the stories you tell yourself and the stories that you remember mm. aren't always true. So I have always thought my grandmother didn't cook. The only things I remember her making are what we called memer soup, um, which is like bone broth, basically. Like yeah. a really extraordinary. It's the only thing that I really remember her making. And then she would... Um, do Thanksgiving, but I felt it was quite begrudgingly. Right. Um, but my mother says, no, absolutely not. Your grandmother was a terrific cook. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure which one of us is <laughs> wrong, but I will tell you that I have my grandmother's um, recipe cards. Mm. And she wasn't breaking any boundaries for sure. Right. Uh, but, you know, she had notes and friends. She obviously did recipe swapping with friends. And Yeah, that's amazing. <coughs> that's a lost art, the recipe swap. Let's bring that back. Oh, my God. Let's do Wouldn't it. it be fun? Yes. I, like, how oh. do you do it? How do you swap? How do you swap? Well, I think that uh, you take a card and then you, you're, what happens is you have a dinner party and then your friends uh. are like, oh, my God, Jeannie, that is the most delicious lemon mousse. <laughs> how did you make that? And Jeannie says, I have the, um, the card. Let me just get it for you. Right. And then she either gives it to you or she you know, Xeroxed it uh-huh. back in the day. Um, and then you go and then you make Jeannie's you yeah. know, dish and then that's the recipe swap. I just think, I mean, obviously, I don't know if you've heard of it, but we have, we have this thing now called the internet, and we could, I yeah. guess, use that as just getting started. It's kind of taking off, I think. Nah, I think that's just the worst way to do a recipe swap, I agree, though. but I think that I, the tactileness of doing a real recipe swap... With real with, cards. With real cards and real people. I like that. We're moving so far away from things with this darn internet. I know. I'm ready to start letter-writing campaigns. Yes. Um, we could do that together. Okay. And... Um, and I like the idea of recipe cards. I like the idea of, you know, handwriting in journals. Yes, me too. Anything that's, yeah. uh, you know, you get to use your hands. Totally. Uh, so let's talk about your podcast. Let's do it. Because your podcast is so much fun. Thank you. Um, so is yours. It's, it's riotous. Well, it's kind of, you know, uh, the difference between your podcast and mine, I'm like, how much deeper can we go? And you're much, how much higher can we go? <laughs> <laughs> There's delight and depth in your podcast as well. So how did you come up with the idea of uh, Life's a Banquet? So Bretton and I uh, have both gone through some pretty dramatic highs and lows in the past couple of years. We both closed businesses. Um, Bretton particularly has this uncanny ability to be so fabulous no matter what is happening in his life. He's the kind of person who literally, because this actually happened, I mean, Webster's literally, 
uh, walked out of his house one time and the garbage men gave him a bottle of champagne, of expensive champagne that they had just found in the garbage. They go, hey, is this your champagne? That is the type of thing that happens to him, right? <laughs> so he took me to go see the film Auntie Mame. I had never seen it. It was a couple years ago. We saw it with uh, Rosalind Russell. And uh, it's a story about a fabulous New York woman who kind of goes through a bunch of highs and lows, but she's always just so fabulous. And there's a, a line in the film that says, life's a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death. And what that really means is that there's something to enjoy all the time. Um, and I know that can be really hard if you're really in the throes of it, but really, you know, even if, like after my dad died, my mom and I went and got Manhattans, um, and just kind of celebrated him and cried through it. But that is in essence what life's banquet is. So we tell stories, um, about food and drink, everything edible, spreadable, and pourable, um, that highlight the highs and lows of food because I was, we were kind of chatting about the other day, everything is a bit aspirational at this point and that's fine there's something for everyone but there's also a lot of people out there that feel really mixed on a daily basis as we've just been discussing sometimes you can start your day off in a deep sadness and by the end of the day you're eating a plate of nachos and chatting with your best friends and that's real and I think we want to kind of try to touch on that at the same time making people laugh because we're both extremely silly and have dirty minds <laughs> um, you are silly people you also <laughs> sing a bit we do um, which is always sort of makes me giggle listening to the show when you're singing yeah you know, uh which I couldn't do and then you um and then you also are interested in the history of things yeah and is where does that come from because clearly as you've told me and not clear because I've met you but clearly you didn't like school yeah I didn't like school I always liked history I liked reading my dad really liked history I kind of was a person who always wanted to do everything my dad did so he really like loved history and would talk to me for hours and hours and hours about different things and I think origin stories are interesting. And I think, well, mostly the history was initially portion of it was meant to kind of highlight um, how people sometimes go through bankruptcies and uh, great lows and divorce or loss. And yet then they go up and they, you know, start companies. Look at like Walt Disney or the guy who started Heinz Ketchup had gone through a bankruptcy. And just to give people a little bit of comfort that when you are down it isn't always forever. You know, when we were first formulating this podcast, my dad had died. My boyfriend dumped me and kicked me out of the house we were living in. And I found myself for a couple of weeks living at my mom's and having fallen from having my own restaurant being things. And I was like, this is the worst. I will never feel better. This sucks. I will never feel better. And so part of the podcast was really about, and I know that there's been times when Bretton felt like that too. Um, part of the podcast was just, pulling myself up from the brink of what felt like the edge of not being able to go on anymore, you know, and reading stories about other people that have gone through it. And it really helped. The origin of this podcast is not um, exactly like that. First of all, there was no Rosalind Russell involved. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have a funny co-host who can sing. But I do feel that the the podcast in some ways like fills me th with these stories of people who have um, found transitions from one thing to the next as I am um, you know went from being the editor of Food and Wine for so long and then have tried a bunch of different things and as someone pointed out well it's not like you're looking you are doing what's next you just have to um, you know admit that but I love hearing people's stories about like how they traverse it so I, I feel like there's a Perhaps an intensity, but like a very genuine um, interest on behalf of the listeners, but also on behalf of myself. Like, so what, you know, 
how did you pull yourself back from the brink? Like those are yeah. personally of, of interest to me as I like navigate this world. But also um, I love sharing those stories because I feel like everybody could use a good story. Like even if you're on everybody. the top of the world, you're, you're like, it could probably either fall apart or it could get better. Totally. I mean, you, can, you know, both of those can happen. So at the, um, at the end of the pod, I always ask my guests to um, pay it forward. So okay. a woman um, in the world of hospitality who you admire so much, who doesn't really get enough attention. Who would you nominate for the Hall oh, of Dames? So interesting for the Hall of Dames. Um, Desi, who is the chef at Achilles Heel, is a young woman. She's an amazing chef. Um, What's her last name? I, you know what? I, Desi Tuttle. Desiree Tuttle. She's amazing. Um, she is young. She's great. She's really, really a good cook and a dedicated cook and a just wonderfully gifted chef. Achilles is a great restaurant. Um, Tell me, what's Des's best dish? You know, Achilles is one of those restaurants that changes all the time, but um, I I haven't even been there to eat her food in a couple of months, but I've noticed even just through her Instagram and the things she's doing, she's also very active with uh, social justice and is constantly working on doing stuff like that. I've noticed she's been just doing a lot of stuff with different kind of dried ingredients and fishes and uh, looks like she's exploring a lot of Japanese flavors. But I really just recommend that everybody go out and support, first of all, Andrew Tarlow, great person. All of his restaurants are lovely and wonderful. So support that first and foremost. And then, but yeah, Desi's doing a great job and I'm really looking forward, as I mentioned, she's a young woman and I look forward to seeing what she does in the rest of her career because she's great. Okay, so that's the end of this um, episode of Speaking Broadly. Zara, thank you so much for uh, joining me and sharing your incredible stories and your humor. Uh, (laughs) So if people want to follow you, where do they find you? Um, Well, we're Life's a Banquet Podcast on Instagram. Um, My personal is Zara.Ray on Instagram. And you can please send us an email, lifesabanquetshow at gmail.com. And that'd be great. Maybe we should encourage people to write us letters, physical letters, and send them to Heritage. (gasps) That'd be great. Great intake of breath. Okay, we both want that. So, um, and you guys know where to find me. Um, You can find me at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Matt, uh, being the engineer of the day. And looking forward to being back next week with another extraordinary person with more extraordinary stories. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.